welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> welcome back. All you are joined with myself, Dean, and the queen of Flex, I'm the ugly frog. <laughs> Although it's a princess and a frog, isn't it? Not a queen and a frog. That's all right. I'll take the frog. <laughs> uh, and today we have the pleasure of being joined by an adopted Australian, I'm going to claim it, married to a Kiwi, but yep. born in Texas. That's it. <laughs> the muscle nerd himself, Luke Lehman. Mate, welcome. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a long time, been a long time coming. Yeah, man. I've been, I've been poking you for weeks now. Saying, <laughs> your face on our podcast, or more specifically your voice. Well, now, now none of us can leave the house, so it's a good time to do it while we're all having to stay home. So, perfect, perfect timing. For those of uh, for those of our listeners that aren't aware of Muscle Nerds or the magic that is Luke Lehman, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do it? Um, okay, yeah. So, like you said, my name's Luke Lehman. I'm a Pisces. I like long uh, walks on the beach and candlelight dinners and that type of shit. But... Uh, yeah, look, um, I started I started in the industry, if you can say, like two decades ago about. So I actually got into training when I was about eight years old. So I come, since I come from Texas, you've got, you know, American football, gridiron football. And so we get started really early. I come from a very small country town of less than 7,000 people. So your options growing up was like, because the only stuff we had to do in my hometown is like fuck and fight and drink and lift weights and play football. That's if you've ever watched varsity blues, which I was a stunt man in, that is, that is exactly like the town I come from where the athletes run everything and the town shuts down on a Friday night and all that type of stuff. So I got, I actually got into weights for that. And, uh, and because I was bullied a little bit when I was a kid. So, um, like a lot of guys who go into things like bodybuilding and powerlifting and strongman, uh, I lift the weights a lot to put on my gorilla suit because I figured the bigger and stronger I was, people would leave me alone. So that kind of got me started in the industry. And then um, I started, I found uh, Muscle Media when I was like 12 or 13 years old, uh, found Charles Poliquin, Charles Staley, Paul Check, found all these guys that was like, they were saying things that made a lot of sense. And I, the, the only, um, the only viewpoint I had for training was like old Arnold books from like the seventies that you'd find in the local library and Frank Zane, like really real old like shit that doesn't have a lot of science in it. So then you get these guys that are actually talking about Eastern block uh, methods and Russian methods and how the Chinese are training and how all this stuff is going on. I started getting really into that and then fast forward. And eventually I, I ended up working for Charles um, as one of his protégés, and then I ended up kind of taking over his position at the company when he left. Then I left a couple of years after that, sort of muscle nerds, um, and here I am somehow in Australia, married to a Kiwi. So strange. With three dog children. With what's that? With three dog children. With, with three dog children. You know, I pretty much, I've pretty much got everything I was looking for out of life so far, and I'm only 42. So I've got the fast car I wanted. I always wanted a French bulldog, and I wanted somebody. I wanted to marry somebody with an accent. So I, I pretty much got it all. That's the trifecta. I got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, like a good low hanging fruit of things to get. 
yeah. that will give you then that sort of fulfillment. So like that's what well, someone with an accent in the dog. Yeah, like you can find someone <laughs> with an accent in lots of places. Well, everyone has an accent when you're from Texas and living in Australia. This is true. This is true. But then she, but then he found a kiwi. Yeah, that's so weird. But, How did you and Zoe met? I imagine. Correct me if I'm wrong. At a gym or at some sort of educational course. At a course, yeah. So I was teaching for Polycom Group in Sydney, and she was one of the students. And I had just come off of probably one of the worst classes I'd ever taught. Not not because I taught bad, because the students were terrible. Like, uh, this was a, a, a PICP level one, level two course where you're learning how to, how to coach and how to train. And they basically tore this guy's facility to pieces, like... One kid got locked in the bathroom. We had to kick the door in. So Pollock and Group had to buy them a new door. They started, they were doing drop lunges off the guy's plates and rubbed all the stickers off of his nice bumper plates. One kid was doing, uh, we were doing uh, assisted Nordic curls. And so I told the guys, I said, now, the guys that are holding the ankles down, make sure you keep your head down in case something weird happens. Kid had his head up. Uh, the guy had 80 pounds on the bar. He let go of the triceps rope and the uh, ball, triceps ball thing hit him right in the eye and he had to get like four stitches, blood everywhere. So I came off of that course going, oh my God, Australians are the dumbest motherfuckers I've ever met in my life. What in the fuck is wrong with these people? So I walked into the next class, which was teaching biosig, and I said, I hope you guys are smarter than those dumb motherfuckers from last weekend. And so that's kind of how I set the tone of the weekend. And so Zoe instantly did not like me. And, uh, and you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really notice her in class. She was there to learn. And when you go to some of these courses, you can tell, like, some of the girls, especially BioSafe, where people are getting half naked and pinching each other, there's people coming in. They're looking to hook up. Like, people will actually do – hey, Daisy. People will actually do contest prep uh, for BioSig to look good. Right. It was the weird, it was, it's a weird culture, but uh, <laughs> Zoe comes in and like trackies and kind of like a, 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 I, I'm convinced it was a side ponytail. She says she's never had one, but I'm convinced it was, she was, <laughs> it was like a real loose kind of three quarter ponytail, like didn't wear any makeup. Like she wasn't there. She was there to learn, not for anything else. So um, I, I just kind of, like glazed over her for whatever reason. And, um, and plus I was still mad from the weekend before and those students. And then, then I ended up coming up to, to Gold Coast and to stay with a friend of mine who was actually the guy who told her to do the course. Um, I saw her post on someone's post. I thought she was funny. So as you do, I cyber stalked her, uh, all of her social media. And I said, Oh man, I really want to meet this chick. So I texted her and I said, Hey, uh, you know, kind of slid into those DMs. And I said, hey, I'm here for three weeks. Will you go out with me? And she says, no, absolutely not. Just, just shut me down immediately. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm going, are you kidding? Like, what's the deal? Let's 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 talk this out. And she's like, no, no, you you don't remember me. You were my instructor last weekend for Biosig. You're an arrogant prick and blah, 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 blah. She actually sent, Polygon Group sent anonymous surveys and she actually gave me a bad review. Um, <laughs> So, um, yeah, so, but I didn't let that stop me. I, I like a good challenge. So every day I dropped in her DMs and asked her out over and over and over and over. And I finally wore her down. And the Is first, that harassment? Uh, 
If anything, this is a testament to Luke's game and charisma. Ooh, all right. <laughs> I've got a tattoo here that says relentless. So, <laughs> took me two weeks, convinced her to, to go out, and it was supposed to be just one, like just a date, kind of a, you know, we both knew what it was supposed to be. It was just going to be kind of like a hookup, one night stand type thing, and it ended up being a four-day date. Um, and then two and a half months later, she sold her car, quit her two jobs, and flew to America and met me in Boston. And we've been together ever since. It's been five years now. I reckon the only kind of person that would have that sort of behavior would be a side ponytail wearing chick. <laughs> yeah. There's no way she was a straight 180 with a, with a normal ponytail. No one does that with yeah. a normal ponytail. Respect nah. to Zoe for shutting you down and telling you you're a piece of shit when she thought it. I love that honesty. That is so good. Yeah. I've also, I've also <laughs> been um, houndering Zoe to come on the podcast too because Zoe's got a big brain and people need to know about Zoe. And now she's, actually, she's already, she's already uh, featured. She doesn't even know it, but she's got a background feature. So she's on here now. She may as well come on and talk more shit later. I told her this morning, I said, I'm going to go ahead and tell them. I'm going to go ahead and commit you for next week. And she's like, no, 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 no. I'll, 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 I'll do it myself. I'm like, all right, well, let's, let's, come on, let's get it going. Like, she needs to get out there. People need to hear from her, man. Yeah. She's, got, she's got such a different perspective than a lot of the rest of us because she, she, can't, she wasn't really a trainer. Like, when I met her, she had been doing boot camp stuff for – a year and a half, two years, and she was done a couple of personal training sessions. So she's been able to see kind of both sides of being a, a, just a regular civilian versus be, actually being in the industry and then skyrocketing up in the industry to kind of that uh, weird niches and seeing, uh, you know, a weird pocket of the strength and conditioning industry. Mm. Speaking of which, just going from being a regular civilian to skyrocketing, I understand that your main audience at Muscle Nerds is other coaches because you see how many bad coaches there are out there and how that has detrimental effects with the clients that put their trust in them. So you run some courses. Um, I think you've got multiple going on right now. You've got a 10-week um, program design course, nutritional fundamentals course, and then you've got another one aimed at um, helping coaches understand how to coach online versus how to coach face-to-face. -face. Did, did I get that right? Yeah, 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 you did. It's, um, it's basically, it's some of the stuff you wouldn't learn at a traditional course. And because I've taken over the last 20 years so many courses and I've delivered so many courses and, um, and I've seen so much content. So I'm always looking for putting something out that no one's put out before. And where, where can we fill these holes where people aren't understanding this stuff? And one of the things, especially is like client communication, like if I'm going to trans people think, and, and you guys know, because you're, you're primarily online, people think that online training is easy. Well, if you're doing it right, it's hard and it is very, very time consuming. It is much more time consuming than being in the gym. Um, if you like being, if you like a lot of admin work and you're great at communication and you want to be on sitting at your desk 12 hours, 16 hours a day, then online training is perfect for you. If you're more of a people person and you need that personal like connection with people, then you need to stay in the gym and stay offline because the online market's getting super saturated. And so, and then people are devaluing the market by just selling stock standard crap programs and uh, not actually giving the service. So we put out, we pulled a, a piece of our program design, the big uh, course, we pulled it out and kind of revamped it a little bit and set it out of, this is how you need to communicate with your client. 
this is how like this is like red flags you need to look for when you didn't know when something's out of your scope of practice, when you need to, what you can and can't do, how to deliver the product, different apps and things you can use, staying in scope. Um, and then things like check-ins, how do you do your check-ins? How do you structure your week? Right. And so it's a part of the course that, uh, I had Shane O'Leary, one of our coaches do because he's very, very pedantic and he's very kind of operational. I'm the worst one to do it. Like, if you if you're a robot and you can I can hand you a program and I don't have to see you for four weeks I'm your coach because I can write you I can write you a fucking badass program that'll get results but you got to be able to go execute it without a lot of input from me I'm not a good communicator or and I'm not a good hand holder right so Shane's very good at that so he wrote all that so it's very good about opening communication and kind of the back and forth and what you should expect from your client what they should expect from you and that that type of thing right. Yeah, I love that. I, I've done both. I've been um, a face-to-face trainer and then eventually moving online. And I totally agree that it is harder online um, because of the things that you mentioned. Like people can't just execute it without a lot of hand-holding or without a lot of queuing or picking up issues and whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's more time-consuming doing it online if you do it right because you need videos and then you need to type out a response or record a video. And like there's all this back and forth and it's harder to communicate clearly when you're not with the person. And yeah. I also found visual cues really helpful. Like you could say to someone, anterior pelvic tilt, and they're like, hey. But if you're there in person and you're just like yeah. sticking your ass out, you're like anterior, and then they, they get it from that visual yeah. cue. And you don't have that online. So I love that you're filling that gap. And I think you're doing the industry a great service uh, by helping trainers improve their standard. Because the standard is pretty fucking low in the industry generally, it, I would say. Real fucking low. I mean, it's a very low barrier to entry thing. Like anyone can go get their training certification. It's the Cert 3-4 is so basic. Your, if your grandmother decided tomorrow that she wanted to train, she could be a trainer within six weeks. and She's never fucking lifted a weight in her life. It's even worse in America where you can do a two-day course. You can do a weekend course and be a trainer. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But you know, worse than that, some people don't even need to do the little shitty course to call themselves a trainer because, like, there's not a lot of uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? There's not a lot of um, – like the barrier for entry is really low, but you can just call yourself a trainer and someone's going to be like, I'll hire you. They're not going to ask yeah. you a certificate. They're going to assume that you're qualified and you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you see it in every segment of our industry too. I, I remember you, 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 I'm like, I, power, I started powerlifting when I was like 14 and I powerlifted for a long time. And, and I got to what would be considered a pretty, pretty, probably the nowadays, the lower end of what would be considered elite level powerlifting. Um, and it took me, you know, 13, 14, 15 years to get there. And so for me, Everybody, I became a personal trainer when it wasn't cool to be a personal trainer. Like nobody was a personal trainer. That was the, my mom even said to me when I decided to become one, she goes, this is just going to be a hobby. You'll never make a career out of this. Right. And so like, that's how kind of taboo it was to teach people how to exercise. And there wasn't a big market for it. So then when everybody started doing it, I decided, you know what? Well, I'm, I do strongman and I do powerlifting and I've done that since I was 14. I'm going to call myself an S&C coach because that's kind of what I do really and I don't want to be a personal trainer. So then everybody started calling themselves an S&C coach. So you would get guys that were 65 kilos soaking wet who couldn't fucking bench press their body weight. They couldn't even squat their body weight. 
and they would call themselves a strength and conditioning coach. I'm like, what kind of fuck it? Are you a strength and conditioning coach for toddlers? Because <laughs> I don't understand. Like, you're not fucking strong and you've never been strong. Like, if you've never had, if you've never had, say, 310 on your back trying to do a deep squat, you can't possibly understand the difference between that and 150. Like, there is a massive difference between that. Being able to breathe, being able to move, like the mechanics completely change. So, you know, where you would, like you and I all do now with the, with like bodybuilding and stuff, which I'm I'm like kind of getting away from that. I can't, I just can't do it anymore, man. I can't deal with all the mommy daddy issues and all that other shit. (laughs) Um, But like, you'll get somebody who decided to do a show and they'll do a show in like fucking miles where there's like three contestants in the place because there were only three contestants. So they'll be like, Oh, I placed, I placed third in my first show. Now I'm a competition coach. And you're like, you were the least shitty looking person on stage. There was only three people there. Like you'll see people get there that you'll get your pro card by default because you were the best out of two. Like just, it's just a, our industry. So is so wacky, man, because you can basically do whatever the fuck you want to do. And, Unless you hurt someone, no one's ever going to do anything about it. Even if you do, we know plenty of people that have injured and harmed their clients in many ways. And what are the repercussions? Like, like most of the time, there's not. Oh, man, there, yeah. was, there was a Sydney trainer that had a, uh, a squat problem go viral. I can't remember who it is. But they basically had a dude back squatting outside of a safety cage in the middle of a fucking fitness first floor. He could barely stand with the weight on his back. And he's like, go on then. You can do this. And he's, his personal trainer is like spotting him. And he, he crumbles forward, drops the bar, and then the personal trainer goes over his back like a jockey because he's getting pulled by the bar. It went, Whoa. that motherfucker is still training people. Because I, I didn't realize who it was until like maybe like a year ago, I saw him pop back up and I was like, oh, he's still in the industry. That's interesting. Like, mm, there's plenty of trainers. Oh, trainers. <laughs> we, we shouldn't give them that title. Plenty of people that uh, try and coach people. Um, in federations that are untested and gear them to the fucking gills and oh, yeah. their health. They do it with nutrition as well. And girls just don't have their period for years on end or there's all these negative consequences that they didn't foresee happening and mm. wouldn't have agreed to if they knew. Um, and these these people just continue on like, eh, you wanted to do a competition, you know. Yeah, yeah man, I, the stories I could tell. I remember being, when I first kind of started training competitors, I remember being in San Antonio, Texas, and it was at a natural competition. The girl I was dating at the time, I was coaching her for it, and we're kind of like hanging around, and one of the competitors was on the phone, and you could hear him talking to his coach like, oh, my God, I got randomly drawn for drug testing. What do I do? And you could hear the coach basically going, abort, abort, abort. I can't, I can't, let it, I can't have anybody know that I have you on gear while you're at a natural competition. It's like, bro, if you want to do drugs – there's plenty of com- there's competitions for you. Like it's crazy to me. Yeah. yeah. Like I personally think that if you've ever done steroids, you shouldn't be able to do natural. Even if you haven't done gear for say seven years, it's still unfair because when you're on steroids, you build more mononuclei there. You, there's things that you build that are long lasting that never go away. Um, and so it's still an unfair advantage, even if you take seven years off and you haven't taken gear in seven years, you still should not be able to go in a natural competition. The official rules with bodybuilding, at least in natty comps is five years. Um, and we think that, you know, legally sure you're abiding by the rules, but it's not really abiding by the spirit of the rules. 
we had this conversation with um, Genius, Broderick Chavez, quite a few episodes ago, and we disagree on this topic. Um, we agree with you in that uh, we refuse people that are on gear and say, hey, we want, I want you to coach me for this competition. We'll just say, like, that's cheating. We can yeah. coach you, but not in that federation, in this federation, or you can find another coach. Whereas uh, Broderick doesn't really care so much, but we, we're totally um, in, align, <laughs> in align with you. If anything, I think Broderick finds it exciting because it's kind of like a game of cat, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a bad one. That I, some federations are slightly different. Some of them now have a blanket rule that kind of says if you use any substance that could enhance the performance, it is otherwise not considered Ever. natural. Yeah, they, and they blanket term it so like you could even say that like the reason why a stimulant is banned because it, it gives you some advantage and they talk about an yeah. athletic advantage. But you're still relying on uh, the moral integrity of the individual to say, yeah, no, I haven't done any of that. Yeah, but so does sleeping in a bed instead of a cave. Like, yeah, yeah gives you an advantage. And then where, where do you draw the line? Like, what about creatine? That gives you an obvious ergogenic uh, advantage. Um, what about uh, electrolytes? What about whey protein? Like, where do you draw the line? Um, yeah. What is natural, and, really? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, here's the thing, too. Here's the kicker. Weightlifting isn't natural. Like, there's nothing natural about it. Like, we're primates. We're built to climb and like run and jump and shit like that. Like everything that we all do every day when we go in and we squat and we bench press, there is absolutely nothing inherently natural about that. That is completely artificial. Get hypertrophy to a human body, evolutionary speaking, is not natural. Your body doesn't want to get gigantic. That's why I've, I've had this argument with people for years that BMI still matters, even if you're big and ripped and you think you're in shape. All right, and I've had this argument, and last year, I think Luke Tolick sent, sent me a paper on it showing that people that are bigger, even if they're leaner, are still at a higher risk for mortality than people with a lower BMI, and part of it was we can probably make a, a, a percentage where the BMI is probably a little bit too narrow. If you're lifting weights, maybe we, and it's not, and you're natural, we open that up a little bit. So for me, if you're in the overweight category and you're lifting weights, that's probably pretty good. But if you're in the obese category because you're massive, because you're on a bunch of gear, you need to really have a coming to Jesus talk with yourself because I don't give a shit that you're freaking 6% body fat. If you're, if you're my height, if you're six foot tall and you're 124 kilos and you're 5% body fat, and you're like, third, what's that, like 35, 36 BMI, you are increasing your risk for all-cause mortality. I don't care that you think you're healthy and in shape because you're fucking oats and oatmeal every day, you know? <laughs> let's, let's break that down a little bit more because I think it is important. I've had the same argument, uh, share the same opinion as you, is that obviously the further you shift away from that, that sort of bell curve, central point of the bell curve for body weight, that you are increasing the stresses of all-cause mortality. What are some of the things despite the fact that you may otherwise appear to look healthy or look lean and fit, uh, yeah. what are some of the problems that people need to be aware of with escalation of body weight irrespective of what that is? We're saying is, I mean, number one is the uh, blood pressure. Right? you got to keep that blood pressure in check. And um, you know how it is here in, in Australia where it's hashtag fuck cardio. Like the, the one tool that makes it the easiest, probably the most effective tool to drop your blood pressure other than, you know, assessing sodium potassium balance. The best tool is stress management and cardiovascular conditioning, right? So there's a lot of guys, especially the bigger guys who would probably do really well if they would just do a couple of big blocks of conditioning before they begin prep and don't 
use you instead of using cardio to chase calories initially do it for the adaptations on oxidation so that you you can eat more food during prep and you can oxidize more food faster you have more energy you can train you have better performance while you're in the middle of your prep so um you know, people need to start thinking about what are the adaptations of what they're trying to do. And most people use will use cardio for chasing calories when what we need to think about it is what adaptation am I looking to do, right? And that can have long-term effect. If I want to lower my blood pressure, the easiest way to do it is through aerobics. I mean, that's what we found. And changing the pliability and the elasticity of your vascular system and then changing the cardiac morphology so that you can perfuse more blood per pump instead of really thickening up that, uh, that left ventricular wall and making it very inefficient for your heart to beat properly. Mm. Uh, that's, that's one of the main ones. Um, another one is um, looking at things like creatinine clearance. So people with a lot more muscle tissues, they're going to create a lot more creatinine, which means their, um, their bone levels are going to be off. So every time they go in, they're going to expect to show that they have, um, like their EGFR will typically be a little bit low. The bigger you are, that's pretty, pretty normal. Um, so you want to, but you still need to keep that in check too, because there could be some type of, um, you know, kidney, chronic kidney disease type thing going on with people that they might not catch if they just assume that they have, you know, that 50 on their EGFR is okay. They really want to make sure that they're getting the rest of that stuff checked and look at their creatine, creatinine clearance, looking at their urea clearance and things like that to make sure that they don't have some hidden uh, kidney issue that's being masked by total body mass or by total lean body mass, I should say. Mm. Yeah, so, so essentially what you're saying here is as lean body mass goes up, some of those byproducts of that are going to show up in these blood panels as a potential negative. Absolutely. They will use that then as an excuse to say, my levels are fine. It's because I'm massive. Yeah. And in actual fact, we could have some underlying uh, impacts or uh, underlying effects going on at those, those organs, the filtration rate at the kidneys that they need to yeah. otherwise consider. And you see, it, you see it the other way as well, too. Like if you see people who have no, like they're very skinny, they may have really high EGFR or, or filtration for their kidneys, but they actually have chronic kidney disease. And the only thing that's the reason they look so good on their labs is because they have no muscle and they don't eat a lot of protein. So the more protein you eat and the more muscle you have and the more you train, the more that's going to lower that value. So that it's going to skew different values. And you want to make sure that you're looking at trends across a long period of time to see, to make sure that there's not some ticking time bomb and God forbid you end up having a stroke or a heart attack and, and it just came out of nowhere, you know, and I'll say that like came out of nowhere. <laughs> well, if fuck, man, if you're using three grams of gear a week and you've been doing that for five years and your blood pressure is 168 over 102, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Like it just, it, your body just finally got to a point where it couldn't compensate anymore. And the compensation was, I'll just shut down. Ironically, people look at really big dudes that are really lean and when they have no idea what they're talking about, they go, well, they're so fit, they're so healthy. Oh my God, that heart attack came out of nowhere. How yeah. can the, most, the healthiest person that I know suffer from this? But like really, there's just a misunderstanding of yeah. what's going on. There's a misunderstanding of what like you've got, you've got healthy and you've got fit. Then you've also got obviously unhealthy and unfit. And then you've got the way someone looks and the way someone looks is not truly indicative of how fit they are. Right. When I first, when I first started teaching biosig like full time and I moved to Rhode Island, 
Um, I wasn't feeling right. I looked fine. I had abs. I had, you know, cephalic vein, abs, everything. I fucking, I was still squatting like 600 pounds. You know, I was still, you know, I was still a unit. And I, I, but I didn't feel right. Like I wanted to cry after sex and uh, <laughs> I actually would cry after I masturbated. That was really weird. Right? You know? That's because you're not good at it. And then I do it and then I'd cuddle myself, you know, and you know, just, there was something I was sad and depressed and there was something not right. So I had, a, I had, I was like, man, there's gotta be something wrong with my testosterone. So sure as shit, I go to the doctor and low testosterone, high estradiol, but you know, that was all an effect of a higher order thing. So I had all these issues with metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure. My fucking triglycerides are like 399. They should be should be well under 99. My LDL was high. My HDL was, my, my bloods look like somebody who was getting ready for a contest prep, and I was not taking anything at all. It was just uh, basically stress and, and, you know, overdoing things. And I had to finally, I had to finally say, shit, man, I got to get, I got to get my shit together. Like you can't see health. You can only measure health or, and make assumptions if you're getting the right types of labs and, and, you know, metrics like, you know, taking heart rate and measuring heart rate variability and heart rate and measuring things like blood pressure and keeping tabs on all that stuff. Yeah. I think you definitely can't see it, but you absolutely can feel it. Mm. And the issue with, uh, the group of individuals we've been referencing here, high BMI as a result of lean body mass, is that there's cognitive dissonance associated with they want to look a particular way, so they take particular things to achieve that. It's it's above what they're natu- naturally capable of, and they do not want to recognize the way they truly feel. Yeah. But rather, they just want to express how they think people think they feel by how they look. Yeah, this isn't limited to just people who take steroids, though. I know plenty of boys and girls who are natural, but they have a huge exercise dependence. They, you know, they have orthorexia. They think they're eating right because they're only eating clean foods or whatever, but the relationship with food is so poor. Their social life is suffering because they're so obsessed with exercise and, and eating well and, and their health just isn't what it should be. But because they are putting so much energy into it, they think it must be good. Mm-hmm. But really, they could be doing themselves a disservice because like, where's room for balance then? Yeah. Where's room for de-stressing or least mode? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, you, you see those, those girls and they'll go, I don't, I, they'll look at you and they'll tell you straight up, I don't know how girls don't eat. I don't know how girls can be anorexic. And you're like, but you're training like 30 hours a week. Do you not understand? Like, that's the same thing. And you're, you're only eating like 1200 calories a day and you're training like 21 to 24 hours a week. Like, do you not understand? Like, you are anorexic. You're just using exercise to as the, you know, not eating anything thing. Yeah. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you're fucked up. Like that you, got, you got, you got shit. And we all do. And especially in our industry, we're all fucked up. Like that's why the majority of us got into the industry. It's always, at least us, us guys that have been in it for a while, we got into the industry to help people and we love what we do. Nowadays people get in the industry because they think they're going to make, you know, seven figures and they get, because I've been sold a bunch of bullshit, but a lot of us got in the, in the, in the industry to help other people because we didn't know how to help ourselves. So that became our addiction is transforming people's bodies and their lives and getting them stronger, winning contests. And that's the way we kind of patted ourselves on the back and kind of had pain avoidance from maybe early childhood issues or, or even adult trauma and things like that. Mine um, was something my mother said to me, which 
um, a long time. That, that same thing where she said, "Where well, this will be a hobby that you'll never make a, you'll never make a career out of this." That was kind of that's my mommy issue thing, and it seems like such a stupid thing to hold on to. But when you're really passionate about something and you're like 19 or 20 years old, and for somebody to you've got a long, I mean, you're looking at like 60 to 70 more years of life. And when you're like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then your parents, someone in authority that's always been there for you, shoot you down, man, I don't really fuck you up. Right. And, uh, when I was a little kid, I was, uh, I was an eighties kid. So I was into Kung Fu and ninjutsu and all this stuff because of Bruce Lee and, and, and all that stuff. So I did a lot of martial arts and I was told at home that if you use this on anyone defending yourselves, you're going to get it worse when you get home. So I knew how to kick people's asses, but I had to let myself get my ass kicked all the time because I knew if I got in trouble at school for knocking somebody out, I'd get in trouble at home even worse. So I ended up, you know, starting to bash the weights because I thought, man, if I get real fucking big, nobody's going to mess with me. And then when I got to college, I realized that drunk dudes love to mess with big guys. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, that's not the truth. <laughs> and that can get you in a lot of fucking trouble when you're 124 kilos and some tiny little guy's fucking with you because he's got a little bit of too much liquid confidence in him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird thing. There's almost like there's a there's a bro code and then there's an anti bro code. The bro code is is like you walk past a big guy and they look at you and they're like, hey, man. they give you a nod like yeah. you and me, bro. And I'm like, no, not really. Like, yeah. but sure. And then the yeah. the opposite is that is like I say this to Liz like. I just want to walk the beach with my shirt off because I wouldn't mind getting some sun. Yeah. Uh, but I know for certain people are like, look at that fuckwit, you know, whereas <laughs> some fat dude or some super skinny dude can walk the beach freely and everyone's just like, good on them, man. They don't even become noticeable. It's super weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Like, um, I mean, I won't even, if, if I'm not in, if I can't see like at least, at least four abs, if I'm not at least 15% body fat, I won't take my shirt off at the beach. I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. I don't want to get chafed, man. I don't want to get fine, you know? I'm so uh, safe. Yeah. It's so but, true. You know, there has been a couple of times that the bro code has really saved me, especially in Texas. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you two. One, I probably shouldn't because, well, I was doing illegal things both times. But so one day I was driving, I had a sports car at the time and I was in Dallas, Texas on uh, Interstate 35 and I was going Oh, I think the speed limit was something like 65 miles an hour. And I think I was going about 120. And so I got pulled over. I was trying to get to the bar to get one last drink with my buddies before last call. It's a very, very smart way of doing it. But I was like fucking 22. And I got pulled over. And I got pulled over by a Texas Highway Patrol guy. So the Highway Patrol in Texas, those guys don't fuck around. Like, you don't get warnings with them. You get tickets or you go to jail or whatever. So I remember the guy steps out of his car and it's this big black cowboy and he's got his, his Stetson on and his boots and he walks over and the guy's massive. He's probably got like 20 inch arms and he looks at me and he goes, why are you speeding? I go, man, I'm not, not going to lie to you. I'm just trying to get to the bar to have one last drink. And I was pretty decently big. So he kind of looks at me. I kind of look at him and he nods. He goes, all right, slow it down. I'll see you later. And that was it. That was it. But it, it was a bro code moment, right? Because, you know, you're a lifter. I'm a lifter. Okay, we're in this together. Because they would never, never let you off. The second time is I was passing over the Mexican border with a bunch of drugs on me. So I had gone to, <laughs> I had gone to Mexico and I had packed my crotch with Sustanon and 
veterinary D-ball and Clomid and all this shit. And I'm standing there and I'm shitting my pants because I've got like $2,000 worth of steroids strapped to the inside of my legs. And, uh, and I wasn't, this was all for me, right? This is going to carry me through the next year. So I wasn't like, yeah, I wasn't like drug trafficking to sell to people. This was for my own personal shit. So, um, so I'm standing there and I'm, I'm in line to walk back across and I'm shitting bricks. I'm like, if I get caught with this, I'm going to, I'm, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. But again, early twenties, you know, you don't understand consequences in your early twenties. And, uh, I look up. And the, the, um, the guy, the, uh, the border patrol guy looks at me, we lock eyes, big, massive dude, all roided up. I'm looking at him, big, massive dude, all roided up with $2,000 of the roids in my crotch. He kind of gives me a wink and a nod, grabs the two little frat boys in front of me, says, get out of line, come over here. We've got to check you. And sir, you come on through. And I was like, yeah. So there are times when the bro code is we're We're glad to have the bro code. Right. <laughs> He's like, I know why you're crossing this border. I cross yeah. it also. Hundred percent. Going online. Funny, but mate, I um, uh, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed with individuals that go to your courses and all the rest of it is that there's it's a twofold thing. One, they enjoy the stories. You're a charismatic dude. You have great delivery. But secondly, is because um, we've talked about trainers in the start of this podcast and how people fuck it up all the time, and I think they fuck it up because. They work at a, at a surf, surface level understanding of what they're doing and they're essentially just regurgitating shit they've seen. Yeah. You know, like, they're like, they take the protocol, they, they don't reinvent it, they don't understand it, they just give it to the person to follow a parrot. Uh, yeah. You're more of a ground up kind of guy uh, and you teach from, from the bottom up, which I think is really cool. Uh, so I think um, in light of us talking about the VMI and now the cardio, this has been a really interesting time with this COVID-19 We'll release this during this time of people still being away where I've said to a lot of my clients, this is probably a blessing in disguise because it forces you out of your current behaviors of only weight training. And it forces you into uh, potential fear points like doing some cardio respiratory or cardiovascular dominant training. Mm. So, uh, for those that need to understand what this is all about, the benefits of cardio respiratory training and then how that transfers potentially even into muscle growth and how it supports it. And it's not perhaps anti it. Could you break down like what, cardiorespiratory training actually is and how we can go about it and why people might want to actually consider it. Yeah. So, and that's the thing, this, it's such a broad topic. Like if you go into a room of a hundred coaches and you say, all right, we're going to talk about cardio. They immediately think about, Oh, I'm going to burn calories. And I, I still use, I still use uh, Broderick's that little rant he did that last time he was in Brisbane I remember sitting in the back of the room and uh, he was asked about do your cardio rant. And now I'm now keep in mind, I'm looking at this guy and I'm looking at him hobbling around on stage, power <laughs> lifter, half crippled. I, I'm con- I'm convinced and I'm the dude in the room that's known as like, kind of like the Brisbane cardio guy, even though I'm not, you know, but we've been told, we've talked about it so much over the last five years because no one's, doing it. They just, they're like, just do your weightlifting. Great. That's cool. But if you want to be healthy, why don't we need a little bit of this as well? Right. So I'm sitting there and I'm shitting, shitting bricks because I don't know what he's going to say. And I'm thinking he's going to say something that we're going to end up getting into like some type of battle. And then he actually just surprised the shit out of me by like going on a rant about stop calling it cardio because semantics matter. Call it cardiovascular respiratory training. And that's what keeps your body alive. And you know what's bad for performance? 
dying and I just lost it. And I went fucking, and that's when I became a Broderick fan. Like when he did that, like, because it's so true. Now, when you look at cardiovascular conditioning, most people look at, they look at marathon runners, right? Or they look at, they look at like Karen from next door who's been trying to lose weight. So she's been getting on a step mill, you know, and she just, she never goes any faster. She just kind of talks to her buddy and watches Oprah while she's on the treadmill or whatever. Cardiovascular training, it's just like strength training, okay? You've got a continuum. So if I look at strength training, I've got a continuum from strength and muscular endurance all the way down to even super maximal lifts, uh, maximal strength to super maximal strength. Conditioning, the same thing. I've got walking, which is aerobic in nature but doesn't really burn a lot of calories. Then I can go a little harder on that, and I can work my way up to like somewhere around you know 60 to 65% of my, my VO2 max. That's where fat metabolism starts to kind of peak out or, and, and the adaptations. Once you exceed that, they'll start to drop, and then carbohydrate oxidation comes on too. Both two very important things. So if someone is wanting to build more mitochondria and they want to make more energy and they want to be able to add a few more reps to every 12 rep max, it's probably going to be beneficial to build up your mitochondria as much as you can because it allows you to recycle energy between sets faster and it allows you to recover between workouts a lot faster. It also allows you to eat more food because you oxidize more food. You have more power output over time. So there's a host of benefits that actually will relate to your lifting, especially if it's bodybuilding. Like if you think about the name of the game for weight loss or for fat loss specifically for bodybuilding, a lot of the times when you when you look at take new, we obviously understand nutrition's the majority of. If you want to lose weight, nutrition is as they say, 80% of it, or you might even say it's fucking 100% of it, right? As far as weight loss, the training dictates what weight you lose and how your mitochondria process nutrients. If I have more mitochondria, I can oxidize carbs and fats at a lot higher rate, which means I actually burn more when I'm sitting around doing nothing. I burn more when I'm sleeping. I burn more when I'm training. If I burn more when I'm training, guess what? That means I get stronger faster, that means my muscles grow a lot faster, right? Um, and then what people need to understand, too, is depending on your rep range, your lifting may all, already be aerobic in nature anyways. If you're doing, like, some, there are people that are doing 25, 30 reps on a leg extension. I hate to tell you this, but that's realistically about 75% aerobic and only about 25% anaerobic. And, and you're working a lot of those type 1 fibers that everybody's told don't work the type 1 fibers because they make you weaker and slow and all this other ridiculous shit. You know what they also do is they also stabilize joints, which is pretty important for lifting as well. Mm. Sorry, I just want to correct. Ridiculous shit. I, um, because gyms are closed right now, I'm changing the way that I'm training. And anyways, last night I just did a yoga class on YouTube. And the chick is like, and now we're going to go into some power yoga and we're going to shock the body into being fitter. And I was like, oh, are we? We're going to shock the body, are we? And then from there, I went to 1.5 speed to get the class over and done with because I thought she was so time. So, and but 1.5 speed on yoga, wouldn't recommend it because she's like, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Mm, okay. <laughs> 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 just turns into otherwise parasympathetic thing and fully sympathetic. I was really stressed out by the end of the class because yeah. Not the goal. Um, but anyways, yeah, don't say dumb shit, people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, look, we've all done it, though. We've all said dumb shit. And the, the thing is, like, I don't want to sit here at 42 years of age with a 20-plus 20, 20 year career and, and tell people, act like I've never done dumb shit. I did a lot of dumb shit. 
When I worked at Pelican Group, I said a lot of stupid shit that I regret now, which is part of why I left. And yes, I was let go. And the majority of probably why I was let go is because I was always arguing with them about how unscientific parts of that, what I was teaching was, I didn't feel comfortable with it. And I said, we need to stop teaching that says, no, this is trademarked and this is what it is. And you have to teach what it is. So, um, you know, I was constantly in trouble for saying things and going, saying things that weren't in the material. I actually got a text from a guy that was in one of my classes back in like 2013, 2014. And he was laughing about how I stood up there and said, yeah, uh, I work for Pollock group, but nobody really likes me because I teach shit that's not in the book. So, you know, um, we've all done and said dumb shit. And, and even right now, as experienced as the three of us are, in five years from now, we'll have the same conversation. You go, hey, remember back in 2020 when we thought this? Man, we were stupid. Fuck. I hope so because that's a sign of progress, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But also the, the, the cool thing about, I think, uh, individuals that take the time to become more educated in the baseline stuff and build from the ground up like we are talking about before is uh, you never really ever talk in absolutes. You know, no. it's always a, this is indicating, this, this suggests. Is, suggests, this may be the case. I think this is the best based it's on the current. It's likely to be. So you never actually feel like you can't go back on what you said because you're like, guess what? I learned some more shit, you know? And back then I said it was probably the best. Now I'm saying this might be the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas people that are just like, no, no, you, you, you only do this. Beliefs. Very dogmatic. They're yeah. That means they have to go back on their own, like their own concepts. I think to, I think that like, um, something that Jackson Poe said to me, cause I do occasionally, I do like consults with him on how to research. Right. I mean, who, who better to do it than a meathead that uh, is into the same type of shit that I'm into, who also is a PhD candidate. So, you know, is probably the best person to look at or PhD. So something that he told me, he said, Luke, he goes, I want you to understand what research is. He goes, research is not there to prove anything. It's only there to falsify things. And I went, huh? He goes, yeah. He goes, we can't prove shit. He goes, if somebody says, we've proven this, we've proven that, he goes, they're full of shit. All we use that to do is to test against stuff that we see empirically and to say whether if what we, if our understanding of this is close or not. And I went, man, that's a really good way of thinking about it. So then ever since then, I've always said like, this is what the, like you said, this is what the research indicates, you know, this is inconclusive, but it looks like it's probably going to be like this. Um, but we can't prove anything. Or if I have a theory or a hypothesis of something and I'll tell people like, I can't, I'm going to, I'm pulling this out of my ass. I'm going to be straightforward with you. I cannot find this in the literature, but looking at the biochemistry and looking at the physiology of it, this looks like it makes sense. So I'm just going to tell you to just keep that in mind that this might be the way this works, but I can't prove it yet. I can't find anything that, 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 anybody agrees with me on what's going on here, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly validity and and, uh, and value and weight in empirical evidence. Yeah. Uh, what there isn't weight in is, is suggesting that you know why, like you've just said. You know, that's, yeah. that's the problem because that's when we start to get that typical dogma. It's when we start to get people saying, oh, this is the only way, you know, and preaching shit as opposed to just saying, oh, that's what I'm, what I'm seeing. Yeah, I think what people need too is they need to have um, they need to have a peanut gallery of colleagues that can tell them when they're full of shit or to go against. Like for me, one of my guys is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Like he's a very good personal friend of mine, and 
I was actually listening to a couple of his podcasts this morning where he mentioned some talks that he and I had where we were talking about things like hydrogen ions and lactate and why someone would have high serum lactate, how that refers back to metabolic inflexibility. And we kind of both came to the same conclusion and we were talking it out. And there's a lot of times where I'll tell him like, hey, I've got this idea, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he'll look at me and goes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. However, and then he'll throw like 10 papers at me. And then I look at it and I'm like, fuck, now I'm back at square one. All right. So, you know, if you have to be willing to eat a piece of humble pie and just say, okay, what I thought I knew or what I thought I figured out um, isn't exactly how that works. And I have to be able to go back and tell people, especially if I teach it in one of my classes, I have to be able to go back and say, hey, remember this, what I taught you? That's not actually how it works. I'm really sorry for teaching it to you that way. That's how I thought it worked at the time. But I've actually found something that works better or found it worked differently. Yeah. I think that attitude is so supportive of the scientific method um, because when people have dogmatic views, they kind of put themselves on a team, right? And so yeah. even if like your football team is losing, you're still going to bat for that team. You're still going to support them. You're not going to halfway through the game, switch your hat from blue to red and whatever. Yeah. Um, but, but when we have that attitude of this seems to be the case and then evidence comes out to kind of contradict that. You're like, Oh, well maybe this is more likely. And then that's how science pushes forward and that's how we progress. So I think that's, that's really important for the health of progress generally in science. Yeah. Appreciate. I think that the result exists, but we perhaps don't know the method as to why it does occur. Uh, Funnily enough, you mentioning Jackson, it's the perfect example of that is that we have been implementing these refeeds and intermittent dieting strategies and potential diet breaks and which is researching you know, for those of you that don't know. Yeah. All these high calorie days within a fat loss uh, target for the long term, And there's always been uh, ideas around why it works or why the result perhaps is better, but there is a fucking mess of data in regards to what the actual truth is. Yeah. Even he's alluding to, and he annoyed us with uh, allusion, alluding to like, mm, my data doesn't really go alongside what, what I thought was the case. I thought was going to be the reason or like what was actually yeah. improving these uh, strategies. So, Well, when we spoke to Jackson, his paper was not yet uh, finalized or conclusive or whatever. Um, we, we were sort of talking to him just after he finished collecting the data and he was just going through the process of analyzing it. Um, and trying to piece it together. So maybe he's made more progress since then. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's due for July. But I think it was the same thing. Uh, can't wait. Yeah, he was alluding to, like, the result is probably yeah. in line with what we would expect. But the reasons and some of the, the stuff within that he expected to see with performance and high-carbohydrate dieting uh, intermittently didn't align. Yeah. And it surprised him. And I was like, fuck, man. Like, this is just going to make it more confusing again. Yeah, I mean, I've got my ideas around some of this stuff with continuous versus intermittent dieting and things like that. And, like, uh, I know his mentor did the Matadors diet, and a lot of coaches will throw the Matador diet out. I think it was a stupid fucking study. I'm just going to say that, and I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with what we do. It was obese people that weren't training. It has nothing to do with anybody. If I have if I have somebody who's morbidly obese and they come to me and they're like, I'm, I can walk and that's all I'm going to do, great, that works well. But my clients all train four or five days a week with weights and they do like three or four conditioning sessions a week. It, you know, so to me, like for, it's not a good example to throw out for your argument around intermittent dieting, right? Uh, I honestly don't think that continuous dieting, if, if you match the calories over the, say, six months, I don't think it really matters if you do continuous or in a minute, as long as a continuous diet 
isn't a massive calorie deficit. Stop dieting people on 40% deficit and thinking you're going to be able to sustain that for six months. It's fucking retarded. If you want to do that, give them diet breaks. But to me, I have to, I have to talk to my clients and say, okay, you guys have had your eyes checked before, right? And they go, which is more clear, lens A or lens B? Okay, then what about this one? Lens A or lens B? Lens A or lens B? And you go through all these different lenses till you find the one that makes you see the most clearly. And that's how I look at like diet and training. I'm like, okay, what makes, what sounds better to you? That you just under eat a little bit and you're never really that hungry, but you're a tiny bit hungry or you're real fucking hungry for two weeks, but you know you get to eat a lot for two days. You know, depending on what they want, that's what I'm going to put them on and depending on what they can be compliant on. But I don't, I, as long as the, as long as the calories are matched, I don't think it's that going to be that big of a deal, but who fucking knows? I'm also a fucking college dropout. So who gives a <laughs> shit? Who gives a shit? <laughs> well, we yeah. have a really thorough, um, questionnaire and consultation process with our clients to figure out what does fit you best. Cause we don't have one way that's best. What's best is what works with client. Ooh, so, yeah. so that's why we ask a lot of annoying questions, which it takes a little bit more time than just like, here's this program for forty nine ninety five. Off you go. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty similar to you, Luke, in that uh, I don't really think there's a hell of a lot going on. Like positively from a physiological point of view, uh, from intermittent versus continuous. I likely just think that it's mainly about managing the entire ecosystem of the individual Yeah, with food and social interaction and like an all encompassing holistic approach as, as a uh, yogury is what people may think holistic is. It really isn't. Um, and that compliance factor is likely the biggest driver here of yeah. success, both in athletic development uh, but obviously also in managing long-term weight loss clients because that's where this industry has failed miserably uh, because yeah. we haven't got management systems in play to make this more sustainable because we do still have a lot of individuals that are saying, this is how you lose weight. And no one's really teaching uh, the whys, the hows, and the management systems. Yeah, and I think that's something I've been I've actually been working on on my whiteboard back here on some systems of how to initiate a diet, then how to get through the middle of it, and then kind of the exit strategy. And one of the one of the quotes that I got from somebody who I've always had a lot of respect for, which is Dr. Or not Dr. Yeah, Dr. Johnny Bowden, um, who's a PhD in nutrition. Um, he says that you should make like the weight loss journey should be like driver's ed for the maintenance. So it should be you're teaching them that this is how you're living for the rest of your life. So we need to find something that you can live with that doesn't suck. And then understand that, you know, sometimes you need to speed on the highway, but you don't do that a lot or you get caught. So if you're gonna if you're gonna overeat a little bit and speed on the highway, that's all right. Just make sure it's not enough to get caught. And the majority of the time you need to make sure you make a full stop and you turn right and use your indicators and that type of thing. So they should be getting educated through this process that there is no end to what you're doing right now. There was a beginning, but this is how you need to be doing for the rest of your life if you want to stay the way, you know, the way you want to look, you know. And then at least for the gen pop, I mean, we know with physique stuff, it's a little bit different because you're going to, to get to extremely low levels of, uh, of lean body mass, uh, you're going to have to do very extreme things that aren't particularly healthy. Um, so, but you, 
which means you need an even bigger emphasis on exit strategy for that type of stuff. For yeah. sure. Right now, me and Coach Shannon are working on a, a post-comp prep program to help people organize their exit strategy and kind of understand where the pitfalls are. But Shannon uh, actually wrote a book on this subject called Life After Dieting, A Guide to Informed Eating. And we coined the term informed eating, meaning using the dieting process to be informed with nutrition, what your body needs, how you can get there, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. And then we put away the food diaries. We put away like all the numerical data, the food scales. And then we just practice those habits that we've built up and and using your informed decisions to to eat for the rest of your life. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in that book, <laughs> yeah. Life After Dieting. Because yeah. it's for sure the hardest thing. The people people that have, have tracked to learn generally hit a you know a big a big hurdle where they then don't know how to not track. They lose they, use it as a they lose interoceptive feedback and awareness. They don't understand mindfulness. It's now just become a calculated game. And that's what that whole thing is designed around is trying to manage the exit so that it becomes sustainable for life. It's, um, life after diet. There is a life after diet. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to diet. You see, I like, see, I actually, I love to track my food, which is a weird thing to say because for me, it's, it gives me a feeling of power and control mm-hmm. uh, and it keeps me on track. And, um, you know, some people might say, well, that sounds like an eating disorder. Well, I mean, here's the thing, like I'm not using tracking to, for dieting. I just track all the time because I like data. So I want to see if I eat 3,000 calories, what, is that, what does that do to my body? If I eat keto, what does that do to my body? If I eat high carb, because I've been playing with this shit for shit, man, since I was 18 years old. So, so what's the best diet then, uh, Luke? <laughs> you know, the best diet is the one that allows you to not binge and get the best results. For me, I'll tell you for me, it is a, a lower carb diet um, and then maybe like some cyclical refeeds and things like that works really well for me. And, you know, like you were saying, Dean, earlier about like how, how people feel. Like I can feel because I use performance as a factor. So if I'm doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is kind of my new love, um, if I go low carb for a few days, I know that on about day four, I know I'm going to start doing the, the Ricky Bobby thing. Like I don't know what to do with my hands thing. And I can tell because I'm because I'm on the mat and I'm like, I'm getting destroyed and I have no wind. That's when I know I need a refeed. Like, um, and so it, but to be able to, to be able to eat like that means that you have a very high level of subconscious competence and you have a very high intuition towards eating. This is what drives me crazy with all these intuitive eaters these days. The, anti-diet culture it's all intuitive eating it's like listen motherfucker if you don't know how food works you can't be intuitive like because if you're intuitive you intuitively want to put a fucking hamburger and a pizza down your fucking gullet you know so yeah you have to go for you know a period of time somehow tracking something whether that's taking pictures for your coach whether that's using your hands whether that's using a scale, you know, there's some, and in learning how to, how to balance out a plate, you know, that type of thing. So, but. I mean, it's, it's very true. The, the, the uh, intuitive eating, eating and all the rest of it is, is still the same now as like every other a strategy of food management or food psychological management is a, it's a, a misalignment with the true roots of where it comes from, which is actually yeah. why we coined the term informed. Uh, yeah. because we do come from a tracking background and then we're saying consciously be aware and be intentional in your decisions. And you're doing that through the education and through the learning that you've gone through. 
to, mm. to, to know about food. Whereas yeah. actual intuitive eating, trademarked version, very different. But we have a bunch of people out there that are, again, just taking what they see as a protocol and going, this is what you should do and fucking it up for everybody. Yeah. Well, intuitive eating, I think, is very confused because people think it's another way to diet, whereas intuitive eating is actually weight neutral. Mm, if yeah. you happen to lose weight when you do it, then so be it. If you gain weight, yeah. then so be it. But with every other form of like nutrition approach, generally you do have a weight goal in mind, whether that's weight gain or weight loss or weight maintenance, like whatever. So it is kind of standing alone there. Yeah, and um, it all Not just, to say it's good or bad. I think look, it's just misunderstood. Yeah, misaligned. And, and people just need to fucking realize that they need to read from the front of the cover to the back of the cover before they start to implement the strategies that they don't understand. Don't just read yeah. Hundred percent. Um, it's uh, it's it's like when if it fits your macros and flexible dieting first came out, like then everybody was just trying to fit whatever the fuck they could in there. And for weight gain and weight loss, that works. That does work. It's just it might not be the healthiest thing. And you know, then everybody got into the good foods versus bad foods. Like like you know, like this is like the superpowers like fighting each other or whatever. Like fucking the Cold War and Russia and the U.S. or whatever. It's like we got into this demonizing all these foods and I'm like, look, man, I mean, fuck, you're getting something, you're getting something out of the food, right? Like, so like, you're looking at like six basic nutrients that you need every day. Like, even if I'm eating donuts, I'm still getting some protein, carbs and fats and water and maybe even a tiny little bit of fiber. So I'm covering like, I'm covering like four of those essential nutrients, right? So it's more, more to the saying of like beneficial more beneficial versus less beneficial sources of energy, right? Which is kind of what we're looking for, right? But there's a man, there's a lot of crazy marketing shit that I can't stand in the industry. Like with the nutrition, some of that stuff we've been talking about. With weightlifting for me, it's fucking reps in reserve and RPE. I can't fucking stand it. I can't fucking stand it because most people that you train haven't trained long enough or intensely enough to even understand what a fucking 10 RPE is or how many reps they have left in reserve until you squat into the point where you fall. Now that's You just hit a 10, right? Most people have never gotten there. So we'll, we use different things for that structure, but I, I, I'm going to go insane. If I see one more per fucking person post about reps in reserve or RPE and the majority of the people who are posting about it are people who are already very well seasoned lifters. But for me, it's like that's doing a disservice to the people who need our help the most, which are people who can barely chew and walk gum and don't know how to squat correctly. Man, uh, it is true. Like a gotta, time and a place. Yeah, yeah. like uh, where where that uh, RIR came from is from a very IQ driven cerebral lifter in in Mike. You know, like yeah, he gets it because he's come through college performance and he knows what that. Talking about Mike Israel. Yeah, you. he knows yeah. what the folded squat feels like because he's done it multiple times. Um, we I. I like RPE and RRR if it's appropriately, you know, implemented. Yeah. I think it can be a really good right. strategy. But I'm also dealing with people that are, again, are very mentally attuned to how they feel and what failure is like, mm. you know. I, mean, I can tell you I can tell you right now, if us three went to the gym and we were all training, we could all probably watch each other look and go, you've got two more reps left, mm -hmm. right? We can probably, like, I can watch somebody warm up, but I know, I, I know what their one or a max is going to be while I watch them warm up. Like, I know I can calculate all this shit because I've spent two decades doing it. Like, you guys too, right? And you guys know, like, if you're lifting, you're like, all right, I got one and like three eighths of one left. And you're like, you get that one and you got, oh, oh, yeah, there it goes. So I got one and a partial. 
but yeah, most people we're, we're we're not the norm. We're the outliers. We're the we're the fifteen percent way out there on the on the extreme side of the bell curve, right? It is true. So, it's very hard to um to verbalize my warm up to achieve my working weight to people. Yeah. Like, oh, I do twenty five of something. Then I do ten. Then I do two. Then I do two. Then I do one. And as I'm doing that, I'm essentially using, you know, how that tension and weight feels to calculate how many more kilos I can put on to achieve a given amount of reps. That's yeah. nine reps away from my current. Oh, that's hard to coach. You know, and they're like, yeah. what? Like, yeah. you mean there's no method? And I'm like, well, no, I'm, 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 give, I'm getting feedback. I'm, I'm sensing, you know, feedback. Yeah. I'm plugging that into the, to the calculator that is the brain. Um, and that is true. That only comes with it. See, for me, because I, I was a I was a power lifter before I did any type of physique stuff. So for me, everything's all mathematics. It's all a numbers game. So for me, it's like that. I, just so that the people listening can understand the men, the mentality of like warm ups between two different high level coaches. For me, it's like fifty percent for five, sixty percent for five, seventy percent for four, eighty percent for three, then I might do a couple of ninety percent at like one or two reps, and then I jump into my first work set. Or if I'm doing I, I may even do some post tenic facilitation or potentiation by I might actually warm up to over my work weight. So I might actually work up to 110% over what my first work set's gonna be. So then when I go to my work set, my nervous system is ramped up. Um, I tend to be a really fast twitch, high nervous system dominant, like strength athlete. So it takes me a long time to get the nervous system to wake up. Mm. But you're pyramiding your uh, weight and reps, right? So if you're doing yeah. 110% for five reps, your working set will be like eight or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So if let's say, let's say if, if I'm benching, say one, I'm going to bench say like one, 80, 180, I think it's 180. 180. I wish. I wish I could still do 180. Let's say I was doing 120, 124 set of five. I might work up to like 127 and a half. And then, then I'd give myself like eight or nine minutes of rest and then I'd begin the warm up. Right. And you just do like a single or a double? Uh, no. I'll, oh, for that warm up, yeah. Just, just a single. Just a single. You know, I've thought about playing around with really super max, like seeing what would happen if I, because I've got weight releasers. What would happen if I did like a 10 second, 140% super max eccentric and then gave myself like 15 minutes and then worked out and see what happened. But I haven't got, I don't have the nuts to do it yet. I'm still still too scared to do it. So please film it. Yeah. It's a really interesting concept that I've certainly um, found it to be something I've enjoyed. I used to do it back in the day with pressing off a pause, work up to a heavy above the working on a pause and then put it on like normal and then use some recoil and a lighter weight. And it's just like, fuck man, is there a rubber band attached to this? Yeah. But I'm also like you though. I can only kind of do that a couple of times and then I just gas out. I'm a hundred percent like a sprint and drop guy. Like, Man, if you're training hard, you need all of that rest. Cause some people might be listening to you saying five or six minutes rest, eight or nine minutes rest and thinking, what the fuck? I have a client who emailed me less than a week ago and she said, oh, just so you know, in between sets, I've been skipping with my skipping rope to keep my heart rate up. I know that's was kind of how I felt. And I had to kind of break down why we need that rest and why it's so important. Yeah. Um, and I, can we break that down right now? Sure. Do you want to, do you want to unravel that a little 
Yeah, look, um, so you've got different systems that you need to rest, right? So you've got metabolic systems and you've got neurological systems, okay? So those are the two main things you're thinking about. So the higher reps you do, you're thinking more metabolic things. So we're recycling ATP, the body's energy currency. So when you're doing lower reps, you have to replenish more. It's more creatine phosphate, but that, that doesn't really, it doesn't take that long to replenish that because it never really breaks down below, you know, 50, 60%. So, um, you know, you, you're talking like two to three minutes, you've, you've pretty much topped up about 90% of your creatine phosphate, right? So I like to do, I almost always do antagonistic pairings. So I'm either going to do like a push with a pull or a squat with a knee flexion or upper lower. So I might do a squat with a pull up so that you get actually get complete, almost complete as much as you can recover from creatine phosphate. But when you're doing the, when you're doing the really high rep or the really uh, low reps, despite the energy flux that you're trying to manage the energy substrate, you're also trying to manage your nervous system. So you're looking at like, I've got to manage um, central and peripheral fatigue um, via my brain going, okay, what the fuck is this guy doing? Holy shit. Your brain, your brain doesn't know that you're doing this to, to make your, to get a 200 kilo squat. Your brain thinks you're wrestling a fucking gorilla, right? So your brain is going to, going to limit your body from doing things that you're doing so that you don't hurt yourself, right? Which is like, when we look into things like different forms of maximal strength, or we might be talking about absolute strength and relative strength, and then the one that a lot of people don't talk about, which is limit strength, which is that the strength you can't really tap into um, consciously. That's the story of the grandmother pulling the car off of her kid and then ripping every tendon off of her bone. Um, that's that, that strength that, you know, you're basically your GTOs and some of your organelles will, will control that so that you can only contract your muscles at a certain amount because any more than this might lead to injury. Like, uh, like I said, like ripping a muscle or ripping a tendon. Um, the closer you are to that, the more, the more rest you're going to need to allow the nervous system to calm down enough to then potentiate another, another um, reaction in the muscle or another, contraction and then there's some other things going on like if you're looking at more peripheral fatigue you're looking more thinking about like acetylcholine release from the end of an axon you're thinking about calcium and the, the relationship between calcium and phosphate okay and how fast calcium is being recycled through circa between the sarcoplasmic and endoplasmic uh, reticulum Sorry, I need some more coffee now, shit, and the uh, tropomyosin or the troponin, right? So there's a lot of things going on peripherally that we have to manage. pH level from uh, hydrogen ions, excessive amounts of phosphate binding to calcium, inability to recycle acetylcholine. So that's from a chemical side um, and an electrochemical side, but then you've also got the brain portion too that you have to recover from, which is, um, you know, that can take, eight minutes if you're doing a really, really heavy lift. If you're doing something super maximal, there's a reason why power lifters think right now that quarantine is just a rest period for them, right? So that's the thing. Like, they rest a lot because you need that. And the stronger you get, the more rest you need. Hmm. So, it, it was difficult explaining the ins and outs of that in an email to a Gen Pop client. Um, because Especially if you explain it like I just did. Yeah, there was a lot of like three syllable and above words there. Um, yeah. I, I basically just said to her, 
you're not just trying to keep your heart rate up to burn X amount of calories within a session. If you were skipping between sets would be helpful for burning more calories. We're using that rest period so that you can repeat your performance. And what if you're not resting between sets, your, your performance is going to go down. And we know that there's a really strong relationship between performance and muscle growth. Um, So yeah, I kind of wrapped it up in a really pedestrian bow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what they, what, what they have to understand is like, you're looking at, okay, you've got these switches in the body and depending on what you do, they turn switches on or they turn switches off. It's just like a light switch. So if I'm doing weight lifting, the goal is to increase mechanical tension. The goal is to increase some, some uh, metabolic fatigue and metabolic waste buildup and build inflammation that I then have to recover from. And most of that, for most things that you would be doing for your clients, most of that would be anaerobic in nature, correct? Because we're, what is the outcome of the, what we're doing is I'm wanting to build more muscle and then I'm probably going to want to get, get stronger because I'm putting on more cross-sectional muscle mass. That's fantastic. In order to do that, we need to do the things that cause the adaptations and the switches to be turned on for that. And if you're skipping in between lifting, you're impairing your ability to switch those, to turn those switches on harder, mm. right? So your results are going to be subpar. So you can skip. I like that. But we're going to skip in a separate session. Yeah. We might skip before you work out. We might do skipping as a warm up or something like that. Or we might just do it as a separate session. But you're, you're, I would be embarrassed if one of my clients was that person that was doing a leg extension and then skipping next to the leg extension. You always see them, but they're still not as bad as the guys who shadow box on the gym floor. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love those guys. guys are the worst. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, um, I've likened the switch for so many different analogies, but uh, I think in this instance, we could say that uh, if you try and skip in between, what you end up doing is pausing the switch of training and it sits in a constant flicker. Like you never yeah. turn the light on, you never let it turn off, you just fuck with the switch and mess with the And may as well current. do a boot camp. Yeah, you're just, you're just mm-hmm. sitting in neutral. You can't see yeah. properly, you're probably going to have a stroke because of because of the seizure that you're going to get from the light switch that's flicking on and off. But, uh, and one other thing that you said there, Luke, that that training is all anaerobic dominant, which is true. Uh, and I went on about this the other day on my social, and that is that you require an aerobic base in order to maximize anaerobic potential, which is another reason why all the big bull feds out there should do a little bit of typical aerobic-based training. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, just going off the back of that, you think about where do we get most of our strength and conditioning information? It's like, who, who's probably, this is without a doubt, the person who's had the majority of the influence on most of what we've done with strength and conditioning. It's not so, Damon Hayhow for cardio. No, nah, <laughs> Arnold. It's going to be Arnold. If you look at bodybuilding, it's going to be Arnold. And if you look at S&C, you got you to mention Charles Poliquin. Yeah. Like, that's a fact. Like, whether you agree with everything, like he and I had our, our disagreements and you know, we had our, our friendship and then we had our issues toward the end. But a lot, I know thousands of coaches who wouldn't be doing this if it hadn't been for his influence, right? Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Like, he, he, he was one of the guys that was very anti-cardio, right? And unfortunately, he passed away, you know, recently within the last, like, I think it was last year or the year before from heart attack, his third heart attack. And um, he and I used to have conversations. Hmm. What he was young too. What was he like? Fifty, maybe. Yeah, late forties. 
54, 55, I can't remember anymore, but, um, you know, we, we had our disagreements on doing the cardiovascular work and, uh, you know, that you just, the whole thing was just get stronger and it was all based on, um, a professor and I, I, I his last name's always fucks me up, but professor Dietmar Schmidt, it's like Schmidt Fletcher. I don't fucking, I don't know. There's too many fucking consonants, not in the vowels. Right. So He's a, he's a professor and he talks mainly about like speed and power development, right? And athletic development. And he has a quote that Charles loved to, to quote, which was strength is the mother of all qualities. Okay. I get that. If we're talking about speed and power production, absolutely. So, but, but just getting stronger is not going to make you a better athlete, right? If you're if you're bodybuilding and we'll use athlete tongue in cheek with bodybuilders, no, no we, we never call it that. So yeah, we're not. It's not. We're we are bodybuilding a beauty pageant. Yeah, that's it. We're physique artists, right? We're physique sculptors. But um, they're competing in the Hunger Olympics. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Who can do? Who can? Who can handle the most work on the least amount of food for the longest period of time? That's all it is. That's like a survivor tank. It's like outwit, outlast, outplay, except all you do is just outlast. <laughs> That's it. Uh, but like, if you look at like, when you're looking at like speed and power, yeah, you, you need, you have to have a certain base level of strength to then express that strength in a time domain of velocity and power and all that type of thing and acceleration. Um, but you still have to be able to produce that repeatedly over and over and over. If you're an MMA and you're a Conor McGregor and your shoulders are gassed by the second middle of the second round, you got another three and a half rounds to go. This is not going to be a good time for you, right? Because you're deconditioned globally and locally. So I came up with to, to counteract that. I came up with one that, where I say aerobics is the mother of all conditioning qualities, right? You're, as my wife is uh, off to say, the aerobic system is your pathway for life. So why would you not want to make that as robust as possible? Like that's what helps keep everything running really nicely. Um, and that potentiates your anaerobic work. So if I have a broad aerobic base, my anaerobic work is going to be much better and it's much more repeatable and I don't need as much rest to do it, which means what's the what's the key, one of the key tenets of, of, of fat loss? Density. I can build more density. I can do giant sets, and I'm not getting tired. I can do Jerome to eight by eight, and I'm not getting tired. I'm just fucking cranking out work output over time. Well, I can only do that if I'm in shape. If I'm not in shape, I can't do that. And then secondary to that too, like in, in the rest phase, you've, you've got a higher affinity to beta oxidation, more fat loss. Like yeah. There's just so many wins to having a solid aerobic base, but I just think there's a again like a lot of dogma and a lot of fear behind because behind aerobic because everybody just fucking puts up the picture of the marathon runner and goes, "This is what it looks like when you run," yeah. and then they put up like the rock and go, "This is what it looks like when you uh, lift weights." You know, uh, fuck no, no, this is what happens when you have an islander father and you take anabolic steroids and lift lots of weights. God, and you're already like, no. I reckon he's my what's that? Pass. the rock. Yeah. I, I approve my free pass. Mm. Would you know what? If, if I, if I had a, if I had a list of kind of like, if I was gay, these are dudes I would do. I would, the rock would be on there and probably Denzel Washington. That actor oh, guy. Luke, no wonder we get along. He's my favorite actor of all time. Oh, he's the man. He's oh, the man. man. <laughs> I really like Mark Wahlberg movies too. But then the other day I watched yeah. his Instagram and he went hella Jesus on it. And I was like, ah, 
Have you ever seen, okay, Mark Wahlberg, what was the movie he was in? Was it Fear? Where he was dating this chick and like he was a psychopath that they didn't know? Uh, you gotta, I'll find it and I'll send it to you, but it's funny because at one point, like he's, he's talking to the girl's father who doesn't approve and apparently he's like, um, he's taken the girl's virginity at this point. He's also like done something else to the guy like driven this, this pride car that he had that no one's ever driven. And he looks at him and he goes, now I've popped both your cherries or something like that. <laughs> and at that point I was like, Oh damn, Mark Wahlberg is fucking savage. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, Mr. Luke, we appreciate your time, but we know it's a finite resource. So we might start with our wrap up questions if you don't mind. Okay. But first, because uh, we have talked a little bit about cardio and all the rest of it, our tagline, as we told you at the beginning of this, is how to be less shit. So if somebody wants to like take a basic framework of how to build some aerobic fitness, what does yeah. that conceptually look like if they want to be less shit from a uh, not dying point of view? Okay, so, so kind of Reader's Digest version is first you have to realize how much time do you have because time is, time is the one thing you can't buy. So how much time do you have and how much can you dedicate to it? The easiest, lowest hanging fruit is just your standard steady state aerobics. You put a heart rate strap on and you walk on an incline for 120, 130 beats and you do it for as long as you can handle. Yeah, Joel Jamison says, you know, a minimum of 30 minutes. I would tend to agree with that. And I would say, it, you know, the more you do up front, the, the faster you get the adaptation. So that's the best. If, you, if you're in quarantine and you got three or four more weeks and you can do 90 minutes of aerobics a day, fucking do it. Just put, on, put something on your TV. And I know that sounds extreme to people, but the thing is we're doing such low intensity work that you need a lot of high volume. Because volume and intensity have an inverse relationship, right? So the higher intense I go, the less stuff I can do. The lower intense, the more I'm going to need to let it listen adaptation. So for a lot of people that are stuck at home, if you've got a treadmill, just stick, stick, your, stick the movie Fear with Mark Wahlberg again and walk and just watch the whole movie and just walk on an incline, right? Um, and you'll usually see massive benefits within three weeks of that. So it's very high return on investment but it does take a lot of investment capital up front. Now, if you don't have time for that, now we have to look at things. How do I increase, um, how do I increase work output, but also make it aerobic in nature? So let's say 30 second sprints with four minute rest. Okay. The majority of that workout, you would be recovering in the, in an aerobic zone, despite 30 seconds being glycolytic in nature. So you'd have some global and local glycolytic work for 30 seconds, but then you'd have complete rest for four minutes. So the, the sum total would be mainly aerobic with some anaerobic benefit as well. So that, those would be easy ways of doing it. Uh, monitoring your heart rate. Uh, my, my goal for most people is to get their heart rate somewhere in the 50s. I think 50 resting heart rate is excellent. It shows you have a pretty high VO2 max. Incre what's it sitting at? I hit, I hit 48 the other day. Currently, today's 58, but I've also, I had, I had half a liter of coffee this morning, so to be 58 and a half a liter deep, I'm good. That's pretty good, right? Um, that's a, I was like, I was sitting at like 50-something uh, yesterday after like eight milligrams of nicotine and like six espressos, so I was doing pretty good. <laughs> that's but, why you also like Broderick, but anyway. Oh, yeah, 100%. So the thing is like the lower your heart rate is, resting heart rate, 
So I like that kind of in the middle of the day. The lower that is and the higher your maximum heart rate is, the better your VO2 max is, which means you oxidize better. You can test this. Run as hard as you can on a treadmill for 12 minutes. Monitor it with a heart rate strap. How high can you get that? You want that to be as high as possible. You want your resting heart rate to be low as possible. So if you have somebody who's sitting at like, uh, say right now my maximum heart rate's 190, my resting heart rate's around 56, 57, that gives me a VO2 max somewhere around 50. Okay, pretty good. Not that good for me, so I'm now doing more cardio work because I like to be closer to 60. I just feel better that way, eat a lot more food. Uh, th think better, too. One of the benefits of aerobic training people don't think about is the benefits on the brain. So when you do um, aerobic work, it increases blood flow to the brain, and it increases uh, brain-derived neutrophic factor, which increases synapse connections and increases brain activity, especially in areas that you don't normally you so it actually makes you smarter which is why when people say hashtag fuck cardio I, I i use that as a fucking iq test that they're they're a fucking neanderthal <laughs> yep so that's uh, 30 minute sessions 20 to 30 minutes somewhere around yep. the 120 to 130 beats of heart rates uh of heart rates that's good english how's that for a <laughs> neanderthal comment um <laughs> as many sessions as you possibly can get done yeah yeah uh, i mean the thing is like it doesn't really matter right so like what, you're doing no version of exercise so long as you it's are stabilizing stabilizing yeah. doesn't matter i mean you could do like i was telling uh, i i have a one of my staff members is living with us right now she she came up from new south wells to stay with us for a bit when we got the gym open so now she's actually stuck with us so she now she has to live with us so we've got a pretty badass home gym um and i've just brought home a concept two rower and a spin bike and so she's doing a lot of aerobic conditioning right now to lose weight uh, and to um, and to to improve her health markers, and uh, she, she asked me the same thing. Like, do you care what I do? I go, I don't give a shit what you do, as long as your heart rate stays where I want it to stay. Because I'm working on the heart and the vascular system. I'm not working on what's going on with your legs or your arms or anything else. I'm looking at just global conditioning stuff. So if you want to do five minutes on the rower, 15 minutes on the spin bike, you want to go run around the block, I don't give a shit. I just, just sustain your heart rate in the range I'm wanting for the time period I'm wanting. And I'm super happy with that. Later, we'll talk about more specific localized conditioning, which is going to be, we're going from a level of general um, training to more specificity, which means that if she decided she wanted to say, I don't know, play AFL on the weekends, then we would start doing specific conditioning for the legs and things. Yeah. yeah. For anyone that doesn't have any equipment at all, um, our home gym is limited to a few resistance bands and I think like a hundred kilos of weight. So like nothing. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, the other day stood in front of the TV and ran on the spot while I watched a movie. Yeah. Like that's, you don't need any equipment. You just yeah. need like a bit of, I don't know, no shame and a bit of creativity. <laughs> She has no shame. The same for me, man. I like last night I ran a 25 minute session and I actually just was referencing heart rate for where I was sitting in ranges and it was just back and forth between a push and a pull of some description, varied exercises. It really wasn't there for hypertrophy. It was just making work. Yeah. Um, and uh, the one thing I, I would say uh, that I've found, especially in my uh, quite unique population of primary bodybuilders is that if you set a mode specific to them that they can't actually get their heart rate up to because they do have localized fatigue from a lactate point of view, like say sitting on a bike, then it is important that you do shift that exercise out and you don't have to do cardio. So like I'm going to actually have uh, one of my guys soon just essentially run like a full body weight circuit with like over the shoulder med balls and yeah. a skipping rope. 
because yeah. he cannot handle doing bike work and getting his heart rate to where it needs to go. Yeah. It, it gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it, it, when you're talking about like that kind of uh, local versus uh, global conditioning, like in a lot of cases they haven't done enough of the conditioning work to build the enzymes locally to manage the bioenergetics. So even though their heart's handling it, now their heart is maybe like really far ahead of their musculature where it's like, now I have to go a lot harder to get my heart rate up, but I haven't built the mechanics in the musculature of the legs to facilitate that. Now my legs are on fire. I'm building up too much lactate. Okay, that's the goal was to keep that down because mitochondria don't like that very much. And when you're doing that, what you're showing is that that you cannot, you cannot buffer hydrogen ions anymore. Um, you're losing that ability. So there's a lot of reasons why that could be. It could be low NAD, so it could be a low amount of B3 or activated B3. It could be the fact that you just don't have a lot of mitochondria. So acetyl-CoA will tend to build the mitochondria, which shuts down pyruvate from getting in the mitochondria. If pyruvate can't get in the mitochondria, it has to go somewhere else, so you can reduce that with hydrogen. There's a lot of things going on in all different directions. And so in a lot of cases, you might have to say, well, you know, while this exercise was great for you the first three weeks, now your heart has gotten so badass that your legs can't handle it. So we got to find something else for you to do, right? Mm-hmm. Because from a bodybuilding perspective, you could have him go harder on the bike, but then that that may fatigue his legs for a squat session. So you know, you'd hit a, you'd hit a, a place where it's a law of diminishing returns and actually counterproductive to what they're wanting to do with what training really matters to say a bodybuilder, which is getting fucking bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a quick little story, and then we'll get onto the something worth sharing part for you, Luke, to explain this in actual in actual action. Uh, at the end, when I of my soccer career, my last season, I was fortunate enough to be at uni, and I did a VO two max on the treadmill. Now I was a soccer player; it's a running man's game. Yeah. That VO two max that I achieved on there with a lactate threshold, my VO two max was sixty seven, and my lactate threshold was like like into the sort of low to mid range eighty percenters like super specific to my sport. A yeah. week later, I did the same VO2 max, but on a bike. Uh, and I only managed to get a VO2 max of 55 because yeah. my legs just absolutely fried from that buildup of hydrogen eyes that you're talking about. And they'll gas. My lungs are fine. I'm like, I can, but I couldn't keep up the repetition yeah. necessary to complete the test. So I otherwise was like, what, fucking 20% reduced capacity from a VO2 testing point of view because of the specificity of fatigue yeah and it, i mean you're looking at when you're running you've got some deceleration happening you've got a little bit more blood flow the minute you get on the bike you've got a bit of occlusion going on it's it's high intensity continuous training so you never really get a relief from that that continuous contraction mm-hmm. so and that 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 it goes to showcase um specificity and everything that we do like because you're good at one modality, you might not be good at something else. So when we teach testing, we teach a lot of testing in our courses. You have to use the test that somebody's already pretty good at. If I and you and then that has to be the test you always test against. So if I do a Cooper's test on someone and we're going to modify it because maybe they don't, they're not a good runner. Maybe they're good at the rower. Okay, I'm going to modify. We're going to use the rower as the standard, but then the rower always has to be what we use every time we test it. Because if they get up and run, there's no deceleration component and it's like a centric deceleration in a rower. There's no um, there's no isokinetic activity to running like you have on a rower. 
with the air display. So there's a lot of different things that you have to keep like an apple to an apple and an orange to an orange. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, oh, that's cool. I did a stress test for as part of a study in uh, when I was living in Austin at University of Texas. This is back when I was just doing strongman and powerlifting. And they, so they, same thing. I didn't run at the time. They put me on a treadmill. I think I achieved somewhere around a 54 to 56 VO2 max being a strength athlete. And they were surprised. They were like, you don't run. I'm like, I don't run, man. I do heavy weighted carries and I do all this, you know, Alice stones and I do all this other shit. And they're like, wow, that's pretty amazing for VO2 max for somebody who doesn't actually run. Um, but, uh, but you know what? It wasn't the, I wasn't gassed. My legs couldn't handle it anymore. Like, because I just didn't, the incline got to a point where my legs just went fuck off. My heart and my lungs were still fine. So, you know, but that's why, that's why you got to be careful when you look at research because you never know how they've, you know, how thing, what they're researching may not actually be applicable to some of the stuff we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now Luke, to start off the segments, we are going to begin with asking you if you have something worth sharing. And typically it's a book uh, or a movie or something, but it can be whatever you like, a podcast, a course, a quote. Okay. Okay. So, all right. I'll give you, I'll give you a quote. Can I give you a couple of things? Yeah, totally. Shoot. I'll give you a quote. This is, this is my quote. Stephen Covey, seek first to understand, then be understood. Okay. So that's how we write our courses. If you want your client to understand how their body's working, if you want to understand how to understand your client's body, you have to seek to understand things first yourself before you can teach others, right? Especially nowadays when everybody's trying to be an educator and nobody knows shit. Like you got, you got fucking kids who have been training people for a year and a half and now they're fucking teaching courses. Like what the, f show me your portfolio. What the fuck have you done? You're fucking 19. Fuck off. Right. Um, uh, another thing I'm big on is, you know, methods are great, but you need to understand the madness behind the methods. So a very good thing to do is make sure you start at that foundational level. Learn how the body works for fuck's sake. Like all that stuff in the Cert 3-4 that you just glaze through, you know, and everybody glazes through it. When you look at like, hey, let's look at a sarcomere and let's look at the uh, Z-discs and look at where trope, you know, where, where, which zone that the actin and the myosin are cross bridging on, and everybody just goes right past that. So none of these trainers know how a muscle actually contracts. They don't know anything about so the electrochemical gradient and what happens, and they don't. To me, this stuff is inherently important to understand when you're writing a program. And if you're not, you're just shitting in your hands and throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks. So learn your biology, learn your biochemistry. You don't need to learn it. Like you're not trying to become a fucking college professor, but you need to understand it enough to know if I do this many sets, this many rests, or this kind of rest and this time of retention, this is what I should predict the outcome to be. If I match that with this type of dieting, this is how I should predict the outcome to be. And you should be pretty close. But the only way to know that is if you actually know how the fucking cell works and how the body works at a basic you know, but that very basic level. Mm. I guess that would be like a car mechanic, not understanding how cars work and just kind of like putting two pipes together. Mm. Yeah. You know, you got to know. Like, it's like, Hey, I know how to put gas in my car. So therefore I'm now a mechanic. No, you're not. Yeah. Fuck. You know, you got to know where the doohickey fits in the flange doodle. 
(laughs) (laughs) I love it. Now, is there a weird hobby or habit that you have that may surprise the listeners? Uh, Is chronic masturbating, is that a hobby? That's not weird, though. That's not weird. (laughs) I think we're all there with you, Luke. Oh, good. I'm I'm actually glad (laughs) you're doing that. You know, I don't, man, I don't really. um, Let me think about that. Yeah, like, shit, man, my whole life revolves around this and Zoe and the dogs. Um, Okay, I'll tell you something people might not know about me. I love musicals and I love ballet and I love going to plays. And uh, Zoe hates all that shit. And so... Same here. Shame Dean on you, Zoe. I, I hate all that shit too. And Dean's always like wanting to go to a musical. I'm like, why? Oh, I'm yeah. an appreciator of talent. You guys can go yes. together. Me and Zoe will do yeah. something fun. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a talent appreciator, especially when there's a talent that seems to be one that slumps someone given to them and then they just fucking skyrocket it. Especially if it's a talent that you can't do. Oh, like, yeah. I can't sing. So when I see a bunch of people on stage singing and dancing at the same time, and it's beautiful. I'm like, it blows my mind, right? On YouTube, dude. The, the, one of the greatest things I've still ever seen is Billy Elliot live in Melbourne. Ugh. Oh, really? Yeah. Probably. We just saw Elton John on his last tour. That was pretty amazing. But I'll tell you, probably the most the most amazing person I've ever seen sing is Michael Bublé, and I've seen him twice. And there's no pyrotechnics. There's no craziness. He just sings. And women are like, ah! and like ripping their clothes off and shit. And I'm like, and he's just, he's just like, it's a super coolest uh, concert because that and George Strait, who you guys, do you even know who George Strait is? He is like the Mac daddy of all country music, especially old country music. George, I've seen him twice and he just stands in the middle of the stage, plays his guitar and sings. And it sounds just like, it just sounds like you're listening to a CD. And it's just amazing. So that stuff blows my mind. Um, yeah, you and Dean should totally go on mandates to the ballet uh, and other really feminine. I would link on with you. Weren't we supposed to go to Book of Mormon, but I think I was out of the country? Yeah, you yeah. got tickets and everything, and then you bailed. We were really caught. We yeah, cried well, a lot all night. We cried. That would, be, that would be the second time I saw it, and it's fucking amazing. It's Actually, I reluctantly went along. I think I went along only because... I think I think because you didn't. I think yeah. So, I think I took your ticket. I don't know. So you you and Zoe couldn't go, and then Will and uh, Mickey also randomly re- they from booked, Nexus performance. Yeah, yeah, they they booked a um a trip to do a seminar in New Zealand. So they forgot because we booked that shit like six months in advance. Anyways, I went along, and it was actually incredible. It was because I think that uh, knocking things that I don't support is kind of funny. So so Book of Mormons <laughs> was hilarious to me. Like, really oh, offensive to religious people, but, like, really funny for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm okay with being offensive to religious people, so I'm okay with that. So. <laughs> no comment, no comment. Um, all right, so... I was going to say, is now the time when we sing the, the main line? No, we don't. No. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> two questions for you. The two last questions. It's your final 24 hours on Earth. How do you spend it? Oh, God. Probably being as offensive and offending as many people as I can while spending as much time with Owen the dog as I can. That's probably it. I don't think I'd change anything to be honest. Like, um, yeah, I, I think I would just do, I love my life. Like I don't feel the need to do anything else. So like, like I said, like I said, when we first started, I got everything, I got everything I've wanted out of life so far. It's been a lot of hard fucking work, but 
like I've got a great life. I've got a great wife who doesn't uh, basically lets me do whatever the fuck I want. Um, trust me, I trust her. We never fight. We think out of five years we fought twice. Like fucking, it's a great relationship. I've got three badass dogs, um, a badass Chihuahua that won't stop pissing and shitting in the house. That's one thing. But the other, but <laughs> other than that, he's the coolest dog ever. <laughs> And he's got this weird thing. He likes shitting on like electrical things. Oh, that is like, weird. What's that? That is weird. So yeah, so like anytime I go into my cinema room where I have all the plugs for the chairs and everything, he shits on top of that on like the little outlet extender and he poops on that. And I don't know what the fetish is with that thing, but. That's because he knows that you're risking your life to clean it with water. Yeah, bro. He's like, fuck he likes this, the thrill. Fuck this guy. He eats my chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so that was Jordan Shallow's answer that we recorded a podcast with recently and my answer as well. I was like, I'm so boring. I would change nothing. Like yeah. mine would be a usual Sunday, like have coffee on the beach with Dean, go to a market, like yeah. reply to some emails. So I'm with you there, Luke. I felt boring saying it, but I agree. Now, Luke, the, uh, the last question is from a game called Shitty Choices. It's a would you rather game. Okay. And this is luck of the luck of the draw. Oh no! Pulling a card at random. We've played some. We played this with you and Zoe before. Have we had this one before? Mm, that one's boring though. Uh, it's not. Sorry. I like right. the last time we played this. While Liz is picking one, <laughs> that was the wrong card. Zoe answered one of the would you rather at speed, even though it was like super a super sensitive topic about like parent sex or something. And I remember we did it in, uh, we didn't do it in your lounge room, just, <laughs> but we did it in your lounge room. And yeah, it's always just like, yeah, I definitely fucked my mom over my dad or whatever it was. Like, oh, no, it was yeah, that one. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. I've been looking forward to this with you. I, I, know, you both, I know you're both yeah. just like, whatever. All right, what do we got? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I do. Would you rather publicly announce every time you had to poop or never use your phone while pooping? Oh, like that's easy. I always tell people when I'm going to poop anyway, so I poop so much. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's nothing. What about if you were like at a wedding, at a funeral, like a really formal event? Oh, I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> hey, man, sorry. Like the dead dude's not going to give a shit. I mean, he's probably taken 40,000 shits in his lifetime. So like he, he's, <laughs> he'll understand, right? So <laughs> he be like so offensive shitting at my wedding. He's like, like you haven't done this and you can't say anything about it anyway. <laughs> I mean, fuck man. I mean, I, I, I poop my pants at least once a month. Like there's a weird fact you don't know about me. Yeah. Here's what you'll, here's what you'll understand. The older you get, the less you can trust a fart. And I mean, <laughs> lately I've been trusting too many of them. And so, yeah, so I've been, yeah, I've had at least once every four weeks, I accidentally poop myself. Oh, so that's because of all the refried beans you eat. Fuck up. <laughs> Might be the fucking MCT oil lately. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. There's a funny uh, one to talk about to finish this up, research application not being in real life. MCTs may delay glycogen depletion but during exercise, but you need to take 40 mil of it and you'll shit yourself the entire yeah. time you're running. So you yeah. probably won't run faster anyway. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, it's that and that, you know, you start, I was thinking about baking soda this morning, like people taking baking soda to, to basically manage hydrogen ions coming in and out of the bloodstream in the cell. But the thing is, you got to take like 0.2 milligrams per kilo. So like, that's like four or five teaspoons for me being a hundred kilos. Like, 
you're playing if you, you you better test this out when you're training and not do this at your fucking marathon or half marathon because if you do there's a good chance that you're gonna poop all down your leg into your shoe that's fucking disgusting yeah uh, and on the note my friend luke <laughs> if people want to find you and the muscle nerds uh how do they do that where do they go uh we've got muscle nerds was it muscle nerds underscore health on instagram we've got muscle nerds and we've got a form that we don't Muscle Nerds on Facebook and then Muscle Nerds Inc. But we don't really do a lot of stuff on Muscle Nerds Inc. except for bash Chris Duffy uh, for being a fucking for oh, being. Isn't it Duffy? Yeah. No, it's Duffy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Duffy, fucking scam art. Uh, yeah. So what else? What else do we have? We don't have a Twitter. I don't. And I fucking hate social media, man. Like it's such a pain in the ass. I, I just. I wish it would just go back to where you just need to be a great fucking coach and people wanted to train with you and you didn't have to like be really good at video editing and making yourself look like you know what the fuck you're doing. Welcome so, to a saturated market. Mm. Yeah. And then musclenerds.net for our website. We just new website out. We good. I think we're on YouTube. Yeah, we're on YouTube. Muscle nerds. I saw your website this morning just before we started recording this podcast. I really liked it. Yep. It was it's really clean and easy to navigate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we got a really good good chick. If anybody wants uh, any help, she's awesome. Like, really super clean. She's like a vampire. She works all night, so that's pretty cool. So Yeah, maybe. I was thinking about taking some inspiration from your website, actually, for our own. Maybe I'll hit you up. Um, and <laughs> anything to keep up to date with us? I think we're all pretty good here at Flex. Yeah, well, um, keeping up to date with Flex, obviously we mentioned our book. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, lots of gyms and PTs and whatever are kind of closed for business or changing their service because of COVID. But as we are and always have been online, we are business as usual. Uh-huh. So if you're interested, you've got now more time to invest uh, in your health or your goals or coaching. Now's a good time. So hit us up, flexsuccess.com.au, flex underscore success on Instagram. That's the one. Um, or 602 slash 2214 Gold Coast <laughs> That's my actual address. Please don't come to my house. Uh, we're leaving here in four weeks anyway. So don't <laughs> I bought a house, so we're leaving in four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciated, Luke, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me.